Hello, I'm Robin Nenugurtha, Head of Indonesia Coverage at Red Intelligence. Joining me is our Senior Analyst, Gunjana Gawa, also known as GD. And of course, our guest of honor today is Robert Schmitz. Rob is a veteran advisor with around 30 years of restructuring experience, and he set up his own shop called Tokram Advisory Asia. Rob also advised Garuda in their previous restructuring back in uh, 2006. We'll be having a discussion today on Garuda, which is Indonesia's state control flag airline. Garuda has been bleeding, and they need a new round of comprehensive restructuring. So, Rob, based on your experience, what are the similarities and differences on how Garuda is being handled? Well, thanks, Evan. Thanks, Judy. I think we look at this case, there are a lot of similarities, and the similarities would probably tell us why this restructuring now has to take place. In 2006, when we started this, uh, what we considered Garuda II restructuring, because there had been one during the Asian financial crisis in 1998 and was completed in 2001. Uh, that was a fairly imperfect restructuring. But having said that, there were several seminal events that led to the Gruta restructuring in 2006. We had, as you may remember, the 9-11, and that had ramifications in the industry. There was the Bali bombings that followed. There was SARS. While not as pervasive as COVID, it had an impact. In 2004, we had things like the Indian earthquake and tsunami. <clears throat> there were discontinued flights to Amsterdam, Frankfurt. There had been a murder on board. And of course, there was increased competition with the low-cost carriers. Fast forward to 2020, obviously, COVID brings to the fore and causes the revenue and the profit and everything else to be highlighted, just as in 2006. So that there, there's a contrast here in events that would cause the airline to stop and have to take a long look at its business model again, as well as its capital structure and how it can sustain itself. So these two events have great number of similarities. The differences might be in a magnitude. In that time, we restructured about $850 million. Um, today, it's over $8 billion. And then we, were, we had eight classes of creditors that we were working with. Some of the same similarities exist today, and that, that being that we have the SOEs, uh, being Pertamina, Singapore 2 and 1, major banks, Indonesia, foreign creditors. So. There are similarities there, but the one thing that's quite different now, which is perhaps the one area that needs the most addressing, is in the leases. The other contrast is that in 2006, we were restructuring the airline that most of those leases were subsidized due to a structure that was put in during 2001, um, which was largely held by uh, GOI, Government of Indonesia. And those leases were subsidized then. And they weren't, the, the cost to the company was modest. Today, these leases, and given the number of aircraft, et cetera, is humongous. And that's where the big challenge is in this restructuring. Well, I think, see, I think they could have managed the leasing uh, far better. As you all know, in 
during the towards the end of that restructuring in 2009, we started up on a program to put in place uh, new leases. New aircraft are coming online. Those leases were very competitively priced. We went out to market. We had 13 that bid, nine qualified, three on shortlist, and finally we have Dubai Aerospace taking up eight. And following that was three more by Mitsubishi. So those were done almost to the level of a of SQ. And because of the competitive process, it was found. So that you're moving at that point from a highly subsidized world to a fairly managed world. If it was the leases were brought on in a very sensible price competitively basis. When we did that restructuring in 2006 through um, 10, the the leases were not really discussed and there really was no reason to discuss it because they were such they say relatively low cost to the airline it wasn't that we were missing the point in at that point but as if we had left behind file notes of what to do in the future the key one would have been around around managing the lease bidding process who are the lessors structure lease but underneath all that, Evelyn and GD, what you need is looking at the fundamentals of the airline, how you operate this airline, knowing your routes, profitability, et cetera. Uh, so I think there's two things that happened. They lost sight of some of that managing your, your routes and your asset utilization um, and the price that you're paying for it in, in the leases. So as you say, Evelyn, by the time you get to 2015, most of those subsidized leases were burned off. Moving back a bit, in 2006 through 11, our concern was the age of the aircraft and the whole fleet. The fleet was a hodgepodge. We had Lockheed's, we had um, McDonnell Douglas. We had a whole series of aircraft. And what that means is crewing it, uh, both in the um, in the flight, the pilots, the staff, all that, and that was being worked through through that restructuring and number uh, uh, grew to two restructuring was to try to bring the fleet to a point that was efficient. And by the end of that case, by the end of 2009-10, we were bringing online four types. We had the 330s, 320s from Airbus. We had the 737s and the 777s. Now you can imagine that you have a much more efficient crewing, training, flight simulators, etc. So that was our concern then because we knew if we could hold to that kind of format, then the efficiencies were there. And I think the efficiencies held up largely for the first four, five years of the restructuring. It's, I think, after that when things started to fall apart. Rob, you mentioned, um, you know, the fundamentals and, and the roots as well that Garuda flew. But Garuda was ordered to fly to the more remote locations, right? So they had to do this national service. Um, it's kind of like the social obligation. Uh, would you like to talk about that? Was that something that's unique 
to Garuda or is that something that other black airlines also had to deal with? Well, I think Garuda's case was it, there was uh, a, a very old airline that was, um, you know, props, etc. And, and they, shortly after restructuring, were forced to take that over and, and fix the problem. While we're doing the restructuring and then the IPO, discussion about what we're going to do with this uh, the, the subsidy, or I should say, the social contract part of the of the um, airline wasn't so discussed. In part, I think it was the uh, not discussed because we had the company who had the subsidies. In this, it was subtle, subtle implied subsidy through having these these aircraft at uh, low low lease rates. So GOI was looking for, they could fly the planes, they could service these areas, and it wouldn't really impact their top line. I think what happens, Evelyn, is as you go, they go along, and then they were being asked to take on some of the ailing parts of the SOE airline, aviation space. They didn't, say, bring it back to some symmetry. So I felt there's symmetry in the past. You had these leases that were somewhat subsidized, and you were uh, servicing the outlying areas because that was part of the, the mandate for a national carrier. But when they go out over time and then being asked to do more, and the leases are not subsidized anymore, the symmetry was lost. There was a time we get out towards 2015, 18, when there should have been a discussion about the business model and what to do while you're servicing the outline, your your social contract basis that you're trying to satisfy. And so I think that's something that in this case, there should be a look at that. And is there a way to structure it such that the airline is able to service those outline areas which uh, probably are losing money to a level that would interest or command some attention from the uh, commercial public who are investing in it. So, Rob, do you think that they had a missed opportunity to restructure? If so, when was actually the best time uh, to go through a comprehensive restructuring and to relook at the at the fundamental business model? I think that's. On a theoretical basis, one would have thought it's uh, 15 or 18. However, as I've been thinking about this in the last few weeks, things are going fine. You have a few tweaks along the way and to discuss a restructuring. We did have a discussion about this probably in 2017, and there was an interest, but it was a difficult task to take it up to your board and take it to the uh, to the owners, the shareholders, and say, we're going to take a restructuring of the company. Now, the kind of restructuring that's going on right now, because it's right in front of you and it's so obvious to everyone, that was a restructuring that would have taken, um, in actually setting, setting the goals trying to work your lease program back in order. And that's 
that's what you only could have done then. To do a holistic restructuring between, since 2011 to now, I think there really wasn't the opportunity. It's a very tough task to ask for a client to take this to the board, frame that issue about what we're trying to achieve, because it's very disruptive. I mean, it's very disruptive to your operations, to your staff, to your creditors. So it wasn't something you could do a holistic restructuring. The pandemic does give an opportunity to do the restructuring. But before that, it's very difficult to find the moment. And I've looked at where they were over these last 10 years, and it's very hard to find where it's another uh, golden opportunity to reset the airline. I guess it also requires political will, right? So you need the right time and you also need the right management with enough of the will to take this to the board. You know, it's, it's unpopular, as you pointed out. I recall that the previous uh, CEO, Pahala Mansri, he tried to cut costs, but that faced some resistance from the labor unions. Now, is that something that's going to be an issue for all Garuda managements, right? Because they are the management of an SOE with labor unions, and um, they will have to defend their decisions to the parliament, you know, some of the politicians. So will there always be that push and pull between what is a commercial decision and what is a politically acceptable decision? Yes, I think you're, you're, you're right. I think it's, it's to do a, what he was trying to do in cutting costs and labor is very hard on to do with one front. If you have multi-stakeholders um, and you're saying to them, as you would probably say now, Everybody has to take another look at their position as we are, as an airline are taking a look at our position. And because you are largely in a restructuring saying, we're going to try and be fair and we're going to try to get to a point that there is some symmetry in this. And such that uh, what he was trying to do, there was no symmetry because the labor union is saying, well, what about the, the lessors? But you haven't opened up those discussions. What about the creditors? Haven't opened up those discussions. So once you have this thing going in motion now, then you can get that that discussion to start take become uh, meaningful, and you can probably get to a point because everybody is in the basically the same boat. But before what he was trying to do, you're trying to put the labor unions in one boat, and they're saying, I'm not getting in that boat. I am not going to be restructured. I'm not going to do it unless somebody else takes the pain. And once you start to put it into a framework, and, and you have to work through the, the economics to make that framework right, but it, you're bringing into some symmetry across the whole complex. Yeah, your idea of symmetry, I think that is quite a contentious uh, term, right? Uh, symmetry or parity or equality or fairness. Um, what might be fair to one creditor is not fair to the other creditor. I think part of the problem as well is that it took a while to set themselves to the right direction to try and find a real solution, right? Because at some point, I think it was in 2018, uh, there was that Mahata deal. Mm -hmm. So I'll have to give a bit of background about that. Garuda entered this 15-year in-flight uh, connectivity and entertainment agreement of this unknown company called 
Mahata Aero Technology, and they booked almost the entire revenue up front. Right? Uh, it was almost 240 million. So there was uh, accounting gymnastics, right? It's, it's aggressive accounting, uh, to say the least. So Garuda was punished. The auditor was punished. They did accept that something not quite right happened, and they did punish the auditor over that. So there's a degree of accountability at that point. But to me, that was kind of glaring in terms of why spend that much time on accounting gymnastics when they have all these more pressing issues that they should have focused on? Uh, Rob, what is, what is your view of that? Did they lose their way a bit in those years? Yes, I think that's absolutely correct. That was a high sign, a symptom that they had lost their way as running an airline properly running an airline and profitable airline to trying to um, skirt the issue. Was it a sign of competence in the management that they weren't uh, dealing with the knitting, the basics, that they were dealing with uh, doing these gymnastics with the financing? I mean, they had, by the way, Evelyn, they had brought that back under control by two individuals who had worked very hard in getting that under control, who had been part of the, the Gruta II restructuring. And they were commissioners who then stepped in to bring it back under control with the aim to get the airline itself and its management to pull itself together and get back to being an airline versus some financial engineering exercise. But it became too late, I think, once COVID came, it just kept on. Measures were not hard, hard enough, and it's hard to impose. So you have to look at this, the uh, whole management core and how that was being run. But you're right. It lost its way, and that was a very big sign. So then at this point, I want to turn to Judy. And I'd like to ask you, Judy, what is your estimate of the size of the problem, right? You've, you've crunched some numbers on this. So what is your estimate of the Garuda hole that needs to be filled? You know, there are many ways of looking at it, and I'll take you through each of them. But the simplest one is looking at equity. Equity uh, last reported as of uh, June 2021 is negative 2.84 billion. And if you think that you need to run an airline with about 10 billion of assets, you need about let's say additional one, one and a half billion dollar of equity, then you're talking about somewhere in the region of three to 4.5 billion of equity, which either has to come from, you know, conversion of debt to equity or new equity. Now there is another way to look at, you know, uh, what's the size of uh, the whole. So we look at the liabilities and when we say look at the liabilities, we look at the liabilities other than the lessers which was anyway not part of the reported balance sheet before the new accounting standards came in. And that, according to me, is $5.3 billion. Of this, you know, $1 billion is to the state-owned banks. Overall financial debtor, including Sukuk, is $1.97 billion. Let's call it about $2 billion. Then there was this $716 million uh, due to Pertamina, which was restructured but they carry in the books at about 550 million. And there is trade payable. Uh, and if you include 
the lessers who have not been paid in the last six quarters, that would be another 2.4 billion. So if you put all this together, that's 5.3 billion dollars. And what is the asset that you have against it? So if you remove the aircraft-related assets, but can, but do give them credit for investment property and other assets uh, and their aeroplanes and engines, that is about $1.4 billion. So the gap between what is on the asset side is 1.4 and what's on the liability side is 5.3. So that's about a $4 billion shortfall right there. So it's, it's huge, right? I mean, it's in the billions. <laughs> It's, it's huge. I mean, the, the market, when they start to price the debt, really do take into account what GD is pointing to, just on the on, from the, that financial statement point of view. So, Rob, what, what, in your view, is the best way to plug that hole? What needs to be done for us to, to fill that? Well, the interesting thing is, you know, let's talk about the, before you talk about the process, I suppose the structure of it, what we have are creditors who happen to be part of the SOE, and then we have others, the state of Sukkot, who have a guarantee, and then we have others who don't, and we have the lessors. The way I'd approach it is sustainability. I look at three basic options to these creditors. They would either stretch out the debt by a massive amount, it might be 15 years or more. They may do, if they can, raise some cash to do a debt buyback. And then there's the debt for equity. Debt for equity by itself, very dilutive. If you can get it to work, you do have some way by which to create value. In order to make this work, you need to create the value, right? And so how are you going to create the values? By getting the, the debt, debt service stream down to a level and uh, either buying back the debt. But in this case, I don't know how they're going to do that yet because in the 2006, 7, 11, what we did there is you had a debt buyback and debt buyback, we had an agreement with the creditors to allow for the company to harvest cash. Now what that meant is after we did the, uh, they took care of operations and, and uh, safety, et cetera. And then what was left in the cash, other than that, which you need in working capital, is put aside for debt buyback. So there's no new money being flushed in from any shareholders for that, was that which was internally generated. I don't see where the scope is for that today in this case. I think one very uh, important point is how much is the government willing to put in if at all, into Garuda, right? And if we look at the track record in the previous restructuring, the finance minister put in 100, 150 million, and that was just for um, aircraft maintenance or operations. And it's like, Garuda, you sorted out your creditors. And looking at the current finance minister, I mean, she's the same, right? It's the same minister. And she's definitely not going to look favorably at bailouts or anything that remotely sounds like a bailout. I mean, what do you think, Rob? Can creditors count on Ibu Mulyani to put in some cash into Garuda or they should just bury that hope at this point? She hasn't changed that much. There are these, as I said, the Sukkot guarantee was 
think what she'd probably come out with, okay, you have to show me the needs of the company other than from the creditor or balance sheet, operations, safety. And you got me a really good, clear number, and you show me how that's going to be spent. But you're going to have to be heavily monitored. I think, but also back in that, that era of 2000, seven through, particularly seven through nine and 10. Sri Mulyani, Minister of Finance, and Sophie and Jolly were very collaboratively in terms of trying to drive this that restructuring. There's a lot of flack. I mean, they took flack every time they went to Europe, the European uh, ministries of finance would uh, jostle them about this, this credit, but they, um, Pretty clear what they wanted to get done is to reform the airline, and they were standing at their ground. I mean, I sense where she's at. So I think where it comes out to where the Ministry of State-Owned Enterprises here and Ministry of Finance um, putting their minds together tightly on how they're going to address that. What about finding new investors? Is that realistic at all? Judy, what do you think? <laughs> My view is with the current... Uh, negative equity of 2.8, the first equity that you bring is just, you know, paying for past losses and doesn't take care of the future. Secondly, what got us in the, uh, in this place, even if you were to remove the impact of the pandemic, Garuda was loss making in 2018, 2017, and they have a very poor cost structure and uh, the, the asset utilization is extremely low. Un unless you can solve a lot of these issues, I don't see why a new equity investor would come in. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. What they want to do, they put their money in so that they can get the future value. They don't want to take care of the past. It's such a big hole to raise that much money, as one of my former clients said, is pouring salt in the ocean. And you don't do that. And even in, a, in that case in 2006, 7 to 11, what we were trying to do is get the platform built that the, that the value was there so that when the IPO came, the, credit, the investors could see value for the future. The money was not being used for the sins of the past. So this time around, somebody has got to plug that hole first, right? And, and you know, nobody wants to do it. So that's the problem for the existing creditors. It seems that the options that they're looking at are haircut, debt to equity, hopefully, you know, with the government putting in some money or, or to ensure enough of a runway for Garuda to fly again. But now that that is the problem. Garuda has got to cut something or to reduce enough of its weight so that it can fly again, right? It cannot just kick the can down the road again as it has done before. Judy, you, you have crunched the numbers and the size of the hole. I mean, let's face it, they're not going to be able to pluck that massive hole right away, right? But what do you think needs to be done to at least set them um, on the path to recovery? Uh, so, you know, first of all, I'm very surprised that they have not declared a standstill because they're still incurring about $150 million of losses every month that they go on like this. So if you go on like this for end of the year, the liability that we talked about three to four will go to four to five, right? That's a much bigger hole to plug in. So right now, whoever is on the liability side, uh, 
has to become the new equity owner. And that's the only way you fulfill your obligation towards them. So basically you can call it debt to equity or working capital to equity. So some of the working capital might be more difficult to uh, you know, convert into equity. But the idea is whatever is on the liability side of the balance sheet as creditors, you have to convert that into basically equity and then you clean up the liability side. And that is step one. And the step two would be to bring Garuda to a more sustainable cost structure. Now, if you look at the financials, one cannot make any sense out of it. So the depreciation and interest has increased by $1.7 billion. So one would think that because of the change in accounting standards, the rentals are now part of these uh, depreciation and interest. But rentals were only $1.1 billion. So why is this increase of $1.6 billion in interest and depreciation? So there is, I mean, is it because uh, the cost for leasing has increased? Is it because they are you know, other classes of expenses which are now classified under depreciation and interest. But my point is, if you look at, you know, there's another way to look at it. If you look at most airlines in the region, or whether, you know, you can look at globally. So what is the incremental losses in the pandemic compared to the revenue that they that they had to forego? In U.S., you had that number at 49%. So, which means that if you for if you ha, if you had one billion dollar of lesser revenue, your your losses was incrementally five hundred million dollar. But that ratio is very very high for Garuda. I mean, that ratio for Garuda for two thousand twenty was at eighty four point four percent on reported numbers. And if you still adjusted those numbers for, you know, you, we estimate that of the numbers which were reported, 800 billion was this, you know, one-time losses or losses related to previous years, that number was still 60%. And let's say for first half, there was no extraordinaries in it. But for every $1 billion of uh, revenue that they lost, they reported 686 million of loss. And that's a very high number compared to, you know, 33.4% for Singapore Airlines or 49% for Delta, about 26% for Indigo. And that kind of makes me question the cost structure that Garuda has right now. And that is, for me, one of the most important issue to be solved before I become you know, the equity holder of, of, of this new entity or the restructured entity. I would add there, GD, that'd be the most important, some of the most important issues resolved if I'm going to work with the restructuring as, as a creditor. You have to get the cost structure in, in line. I mean, I'm, I was surprised and somewhat surprised, actually, they were talking about bringing down the fleet to 66. And maybe that taking out that many aircraft, they are bringing out some, maybe the toxic expensive leases. So maybe there's going to be a savings there. You ran the numbers against that scenario, it might be the right start. Then it's the structure, as you say, and utilization of those assets. Because again, I looked at that, it's about where we started, and I say started, when we came to the end of restructuring in G2, 
we brought it down to about the same level, 66, 70 planes. Now you have a revenue on that aircraft. But as you, you've mentioned to me several times in the past, their asset utilizations are low. But they're going to have to push those asset utilizations in order to use those 66 aircraft to get up to value in the revenues. Then they have to look at the cost structure again. But none of these things for the creditors, that, that those have to be addressed as well for the creditors, even before the equity holders. If I'm going to take equity as a creditor, I need to see that's there. If I'm going to stretch my debt out for 15 plus years, I have to see the same thing. So just a bit of uh, background in terms of the 66 number that Rob mentioned, there was um, in, I think, one of Garuda's plans that was floating around that they were considering cutting their fleet. It's actually more than half, uh, cutting by more than half to around 66 next year. Now, for them to downsize their fleet to that extent, they will require the lessors to play ball, right, Rob? Is that possible to downsize um, to that magnitude? I think if they go into Chapter 11, they put together a plan under that regime that they need to get there and either the creditors take the lower lease rate or they exit and, and the airline itself specifies which aircraft come out of the fleet and are exited. I think you can get it done in a chapter proceeding. You can't do it on a consensual basis. There's too many moving parts. There's too many parties in the leasing leases themselves in order to, to actually have a homogenized story. I guess on the part of the last source is that even if they were to take back the planes, where are they going to place the planes, right? They can't really use the planes because there's not enough demand. So, um, you know, either go along with the restructuring plan of the airlines or you take back your, your planes and they're left idle. So I guess they're really stuck between a rock and a hard place. Uh, yes, I think the other thing to keep in mind in these the lessors may be, they're in the middle of all this, but behind those lessors are creditors, banks. So um, Grudo will probably be seen not only lessors, but the banks behind the aircraft uh, in, in this whole complex, which adds another dimension to the restructuring. Because the lessors are going to be squeezed out if uh, they can't comply, the aircraft is going back to the banks, the banks themselves get involved in the process. So it's going to make it that much more difficult. And that's for that reason I said you have to get into a chapter fairly, fairly soon and, and it has to have a very holistic plan in order to sell it to the uh, creditors on balance as well as to court. Judy, you mentioned a couple of Garuda's competitors, actually, Indigo and so on. I mean, even if Garuda managed to pull this off, this restructuring, can they actually be competitive enough to then compete with all these other airlines as well? I mean, let's just take one name in the region, Singapore Airlines. Can, can Garuda actually compete with SQ, um, even if they pull off this restructuring? You know, the way one would look at it is, can they become profitable? And the answer is, other than 2019, increased fares by 67 or 60, 70 percent, they were loss making uh, 17, 18, and even years before that, when you know most of other airlines were profitable. So, so to answer that question, I think their cost structure is not 
uh, the cost structure does not allow them to compete, but can they change something in the cost structure to become more competitive despite being a SOE? My sense would be at least on the on few fronts, uh, they could they could do something. Especially like if you see the leases went from lease cost as a percentage of revenue went from eight percent to twenty six percent. Can they do something to bring it closer to? You know, I don't know whether they can bring it back to eight, which is you know <laughs> very very low. But can they do something to bring it to fifteen or sixteen? Maybe they could, and I think that could make them profitable once again. I just think, Evelyn, I don't think they should be thinking about competing against um, SQ. They have a fantastic market. It's a large market. So their their focus should be on the Indonesian market. Yes, there's a few international routes that can be made profitable, but they should be careful about that and just focus on the Indonesian market. Which brings us back to an earlier point. GOI probably should be subsidizing the airline through looking at the social contract part of the cost structure. And so it's not a direct uh, guarantees, but it's a matter of looking at what the airline has to do to service the um, social contract. Because there is some parts of this cost structure that uh, are designed to handle uh, that part of their mission. So they need to look at that and get that to uh, GOI make up any difference in there to be commercially viable. And so that's a very hard thing to do. Then you deal with the other, the, the fundamentals on the cost structure, which I think is why the others can do better in the country. And that's where they should be looking at how they're going um, versus looking at their international footprint. They should look at the domestic footprint and work that first. So the Garuda that might emerge out of this is a domestically focused one, right? Just serving the, uh, the domestic market. But even then, they need some some form of subsidy, some form of assistance from the government in order to fulfill their social contract, which is to fly to the um, remote locations. If you don't have the second part, which is the assistance from the government, is Garuda doomed to end up in the situation again a few years down the road? You want to get an investor in, and the investors can be looking at this airline and how much of my investment dollars are going to this social contract. Management's going to have to work with um, the government in terms of that program to get the, the balance between where the subsidy comes for the social contract side in order to make it a commercially viable airline. At the same time, um, GOI government of Indonesia would be saying to them, you have to make sure that your cost structure is right and how you're, you're running this airline. And so it's, it's a complex organization. And in one sense, you're trying to be a full cost carrier. You're often competing with the low cost carriers. So Lion comes along and they're picking up market share and um, with their structure, operating structures considerably different. This is not only just a financial restructuring. This is a down and dirty operation restructuring. And looking from the top of the mission statement and the goals and then the strategy, et cetera. But where, who are we as Garuda? What are we trying to service? And then getting the numbers to work. This is a long way before you get to investor discussions. 
Current investors, yes, but the future investors, that's way off. So do they even need a full service airline, right? Um, they do have a budget unit called Citilink. Could there be an argument to be made that maybe they should just make it a budget service, uh, Citilink's, uh, you know, flying to this remote locations, or do you think the market is big enough domestically for both full service and budget service? There I really don't know. You can see where the full service has a lot of merit. Maybe in their, their new plan with, the, say, the 66 aircraft, they're recognizing that's all you need to service the, uh, the some of the international, say, the Perths and the Singapores, et cetera, and your domestic, and you've managed to get it to a profitable airline uh, going from this point on. And CityLink picking up, running up against Lion and Air Asia. I don't know. I, I haven't seen the numbers. I haven't seen the plan, but I would imagine it might be part of it. Yeah, what do you think, Judy? If Garuda were to focus uh, on the domestic market, do you think they have what it takes to capture the domestic market? Or, you know, they will be up against Lion Air or, or Super Air Jet now? So given, like if I were the government, right, and this is the third time restructuring, uh, I would want Garuda to, you know, work only in those geographies where others wouldn't, so that, you know, there is no dearth of transportation in Indonesia and the government does its job of making sure that there is connectivity. So if there is, let's say, Singapore-Jakarta route, if there are enough, enough players who can serve this route, what's the pressing need for Garuda to serve this route if it was not profitable for Garuda? Now, if it's, if it's profitable for Garuda, there is no reason Garuda shouldn't, you know, operate on this. But if it's losing money on this route, then there is no social uh, responsibility on Garuda or the government for Garuda to make them, you know, serve on this route. So from a government point of view, if there are routes which no other airlines will take, and if the indirect subsidy method doesn't work, then they should have Garuda serve those routes. And if there are other routes where there are enough takers, there is no need for Garuda to deploy capacity there and lose money. If there are other takers there, because from a government point of view, you know, you would look at, you know, maintaining connectivity as your main main motive, right? So that's that's how I how how I would think about it. I think there's a flaw in that, in a sense, GD, because if you retreat to that level. Then GOI just government takes back to airline and delists it, et cetera, and gets his subsidies for flying into those areas. And at some point, it dries up. It, it loses its uh, resin d'etre. I think its resin d'etre has, on one hand, to be the country's flag carrier, you need to service both the commercial at a at a quality level that gives the country pride, and you have to do the social contract. And the social contract part, which we've been talking about a lot, has got to be the part that gets subsidized and has to be recognized as a cost that um, the government needs to bear if it wants that part of the mission done. I mean, it, it, so that's a, that's a very strategic decision what do we want this airline to be? And my understanding then as it, it, and today as it was then, we want to be a national carrier. 
high quality, great image for the country. Some other airlines in this region do not service their the image of the country well and how they've been managed and operated. So in that regard, you're trying to operate this airline in a very commercial savvy way so that you are looked that it reflects well on the country but you and you can do that i think you can do that if you recognize what the costs are to dealing with your other part of the mandate uh, the social contract part what is that going to be priced at and how do you fill that void if once you fill the void obviously with the condition again that you're operating a viable airline by itself and a whole, then I think you got you can make it work. I'm, but if you go to what you're mentioning, I see it as just retreating. If you may recall, in two, the 1998, this airline was flying global. When we got down in 2001, it retreated down to Tokyo, places in China, Hong Kong, Singapore, and a few places in Europe. It had contracted its global footprint and that was that was wise when we were done in 2009 10 as we got to through the plan the aim was still trying to follow those viable routes into europe not many to the gulf to north asia australia and then at home and making it viable i think if they kept that they could still make it work but they have to look carefully at each of these routes there, there was there was some looseness, I must say, at some point, and I heard about they were doing in 2013-14 and what they're trying to get into certain parts of China. I don't know if that was wise, but I think they retreated those those routes sensibly. So that's a big route plan. It, the, what is the mission? I guess my point in all this. What is your mission? Rob, do you have any last statement to make about Garuda? Well, I guess if my advice to the advisors would be that, you know, it's, we were saying in order to have to get the plan together, get the operations worked through, and then the plan size, et cetera, they can do both a PKPU and an international insolvency proceeding. Notwithstanding that there is no recognition by the Indonesian courts of the foreign courts, it will be a highly choreographed exercise but it's all quite possible. And that shouldn't be any of their hang up to get that done. But they will have to go through proceeding of that sort to pull it together and, and synchronize the restructuring. Okay, well, thank you so much for listening to this discussion and I hope you found it useful. Thank you.